Hi, everyone. This is Kyle from The Career Guide. And before we start our podcast today, I just wanted to say thanks for listening and subscribing. And I also wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a free community for graduates, young professionals, or really anyone that's interested in finding, starting, and managing their international career. So go ahead and check the link in the show notes, and you can join us inside the community where there's 130-plus members already striving to achieve their international career. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you inside the community. And now on to our podcast. What do I want for me? I mean, in the private sector, I had an open-ended contract. I could have stayed there lifetime and made my career in there. There was no ending to it. And I remember my parents were saying that I'm crazy that I'm leaving such a secure position. And I did because I wanted to do what is right for me and what felt right for me at the time. Hey, everybody. This is the Career Guide podcast brought to you by Capacity Building International and your host, Kyle King. If you've dreamed of working abroad and having an international career, this podcast is for you. Every episode is an interview with someone from the international community. We hear their stories, how they got started, and about their life and experiences while working abroad. Each episode will provide you with personal insights, tips, and strategies to help you launch your international career. We hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our career newsletter so you don't miss out on your future and opportunities. Today, we are talking with Stephanie Daneman de Palma, who has spent the last 16 years working internationally in UNDRR in Bonn and then Brussels. Stephanie started out as a specialist in natural hazards in a Swiss insurance company working in New York and then transitioned to managing international projects in the Swiss Federal Institute for Snow and Avalanche Research, where she worked for three years before getting a position in the UN system. Overall, Stephanie has spent 20 years working in an international environment and has worked for organizations like the UN, and she is here to share her thoughts and ideas on international work with us today. Okay. Hi, Stephanie. How are you? Good, good. (laughs) Good. So, um, yeah, thanks for taking your time today. And I guess before we start, why don't we just do a kind of a quick introduction, how long you've been working internationally and things like that and and who you're working with now. Okay, I currently work for the United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction uh, based in um, Brussels. Uh, before I've been based in, in Bonn, actually. It's been 14 years, 15 years actually with the United Nations. And then um, my career internationally started actually immediately after the university where I worked for Swiss Reinsurance. Um, I, I moved from Manhattan uh, to Davos, Switzerland, where I worked for the Swiss Snow and Avalanche Research Center. And then I, I moved to Bonn and then Brussels, so I stayed Europe-based. Uh, so I always had this international tendency in whatever I've been doing. So. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. And so one of the things that we kind of teach in the course is this different aspect between like having a headquarters or a head office and then also in the mission or in the field. Mm-hmm. So the UN has a lot of field locations, but you kind of, when you started your career, you, you took a little bit of a different approach, right? I mean, you're from Europe, so you kind of works, I guess we could say internationally by just going to another European country to start out. And that kind of launched your career into the UN. 
Yes, it uh, actually, I, I always worked internationally from, as you rightly pointed out, from a European base, but I've been working in projects in Latin America in uh, okay. help setting up the tsunami early warning system. So I was traveling all over the place with just coming back uh, and, and changing suitcases. Uh, so yes, I was lucky or l- I don't know if you're lucky or not, if you can say that, but it was, I was based in Europe, but working internationally. So I had the two sides of the world, basically, which for some is considered very comfortable international lifestyle, and uh, uh, which wasn't my intention when joining with the UN. That wasn't my intention at all. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, so how many countries have you been to now? Are you keeping track? A traveling? No, I haven't kept track, but my, my frequent Ohio mice have been skyrocketing for a while. It's it's dropped down okay. <laughs> and now being based in Brussels, where I mainly work for, you know, with the European Commission and European Union, my travel actually has been dramatically reduced. But that's also part of the the lifestyle I'm developing because, uh, you know, being married, that's not necessarily the reason, but having children, that uh, put for, for me personally a stop in my desire to do, be nonstop uh, in an airplane and, and traveling around the world. So uh, this really changed in my career, uh, my perspective on what do I really want. Um, I'm a geologist. Yeah. I, I studied geology. I have a master's and a PhD. And uh, and with the geology, I was like this international aspects, you know, earthquake, volcanoes. This is what the driving part to me. And that was, you know, driving into this exciting career. And for me, ending up at the United Nations and dealing with disaster risk reduction, which is part of my geology background, I feel very luxurious to have, have had this opportunity. And so for me, you know, and then traveling around the world that just was perfect. It's really perfect for me. Well, that's amazing. And and so you're the first international geologist I've met in my, you know, uh, you know, trained in geology. That, that's fantastic. I mean, that, that also kind of shows her it's a bit of a testament to the fact that even though you, you pursue one educational career path, that you don't necessarily end up being in that field, especially when you're working internationally, right? So there's some linkages, there's some, like how you got started was probably related, of course, to your your degree and your career field, but then where you end up um, might be sort of far away from that. But I think that's sort of a, you know, like for me, I came out of emergency management, crisis management, and now I'm sitting in Ukraine and kind of a political position is different than what I was studying, you know, (laughs) but it is somehow related because it's international crisis. And and that's kind of where things, there's still some, some connection to what we've, we've learned. How was your time in, in Latin America? I didn't know you were actually there. I I wasn't there, but I had a two year project in, in the, uh, in Latin America, which I actually managed through Davos, Switzerland. In the organization I worked with, um, it was part of a research institution. We were hired for the Inter-American Development Bank to do an analysis on natural and unexpected disasters on their policies, you know, gap analysis, trends, where it's going. And so I got involved there um, because when I, before I, I used to work for Swiss Reinsurance and my focus focus area was Latin America working for Swiss, Swiss reinsurance in the United States. And so, um, so that was the attraction. And so I did 
we traveled a lot to the uh, the Caribbean, for example, and Nicaragua, and we we talked with the government uh, and with the various banks' portfolios and visited and did an evaluation and looking at this and spent some time there just for these interviews and doing our research. It was a semi-research type of study. So when I finished my, my university, um, I moved into the private sector and the private sector really helped me opening up my mind on particular topics in the developing or uh, I, I don't like the word developing countries, but in countries that are, um, you need some support and needs and, and analysis. And, and so this was very, very helpful for, to get my more international career started. And I think with that experience working for the private sector, working in more in areas that are linked to the international organization really start help opening for me the pathway to where I am today. That's really because you took a, an entirely different perspective of what we've kind of been talking or, or past than what we've been talking about in the course. I mean, we kind of fic- we focused on like there's the big four international organizations of, you know, NATO, EU, UN, OSCE, and then kind of all their subordinate departments and agencies, which you know very well. Um, and then there's people that are kind of supporting them. So whether that's bilateral programs or if that's, you know, companies that are, you know, Kimonix or DAI or others that are supporting agencies to the different projects. But you actually came from kind of a research background. So you went private sector and correct me if I'm wrong, if I misunderstand it, but kind of private sector to like research and analysis and then through private sector supporting an international project. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it is. um, So I started off with the private sector, private sector working, you know, in in this case, it was Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, And then I realized working for the private sector that in, in working for the reinsurance world, when you look at all the insurances and reinsurance world, I realized, you know, it's. They, they, the reason why they sometimes don't invest in these countries because there is no profit making hmm. part of it. So the investment, and it's it's perfectly right because as a private sector company, you always need to see how to you know gain. It's it's not it's not uh, um, a non governmental organization or a non profit organization. So, and it's the right. But I realized for me this is not what I want because I'm very socially and I'm I always want to help. So for me, it it didn't feel right with the philosophy. I had at that time with nowadays philosophy, I wish I would have stayed because I could have made maybe an impact because there's ways that private sectors can help, you know, in, in this, in the social world and, and they want actually. So, but, um, so at the time, then I moved to a, a research organization that did work in, uh, in these countries, um, but also working with developing banks so that was sort of like a hybrid situation and then i i had the opportunity because there was i i heard that the united nations is looking for someone and, and my profile would just fit with what i uh, what they were proposing and I, uh, and so i moved then you know it was a diff, totally different per, career path but it wasn't meant to be that way it was just going with the flow with the momentum being open and always analyzing what do I want for me? I mean, in the private sector, I had an an, uh, an open-ended contract. I could have stayed there a lifetime and made my career in there. There was no ending to it. And I remember my parents were saying that I'm crazy that I'm leaving such a secure position. 
and I did because I, I, I wanted to do what is right for me and what felt right for me at the time. And here you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so the, the, I mean, it's interesting because you said that it wasn't planned. It wasn't something you were naturally going to, you're, you're migrating to. It's just, you kind of, it happened and you heard about it and you, you applied for the position. And that's really essentially what's happened with me. And kind of with all the interviews we've done so far, everybody was like, well, it just kind of happened. I heard about it. I applied for it and I got the position and then I kind of just launched into this like 15 and 20 year career that people are, have or are going through. And so that's really interesting. I mean, but how did you hear about this initially when you were just getting started? Were you, um, you know, was this like through your network because your professional contacts and because like you said, I, I like what you said, where you, you have to remain open. You have to be kind of open to new ideas and explore new opportunities. So how did that new opportunity come to you? I think, uh, I mean, what was for me, um, I'm very straightforward. That may be also because of my German nature that I'm just like direct. So when I finished <laughs> my university, you know, I was in my last year of my PhD in writing and the pressure came up, you need to find a job. And I knew I didn't want to stay in research necessarily uh, because the only thing you do in research, when you look at the professors, they're writing proposals and run after money. And I was like, no, this is not what I want to do. Uh, and so I said, I want to do something more practical. And then at the time, internet was only coming up. And I know it makes me sound now very old, uh, but we had um, for, maybe not your student know it, but there was Net Netscape. And Netscape was an internet browser that was for some companies not very stable and it kept crashing. And I want to do something in climate change because that was my PhD about climate change and geology, historical part. And I knew, and I saw that the, the reinsurance company was doing something like this, but it kept breaking down. And so I picked up the phone. I said, I really want to know more about what you're doing in this. Whom can I talk to? Uh, and I was just finishing PhD student. <laughs> But they were so flabbergasted by someone having the guts to pick up the phone and call them and ask for information that they invited me to come. And I went there oh, wow. to just to speak with them. And it was a three-hour car drive for me at the time, which in the United States is sometimes considered nothing. But I just did it. And I had a very informal conversation. And then I didn't realize that they were actually scoping me out for an interview, but it was through my gutsy move of picking up the phone that is triggered it. Sometimes you have to be, you know, if you become too aggressive, I didn't have a mind that I want to chop with them. I just wanted to know what, what they want to do. And it just lead into something. Was that the perfect job I wanted to have? I don't know at the time, but I just went with the flow because I knew this is, this sounds good. You know, it was just the intuition. You, I just followed the intuition. And that is something that happened all the time. I, I experienced September 11th. And uh, September 11th was a turning point for me where I decided, do I really want to spend my entire life in the United States? Because I was cut off from home. You know, before you could take a plane, you can call them, was no problem to commute. But with September 11th, you became to realization even if I wanted to, I couldn't go home. I couldn't walk. 
you know i couldn't I, yeah i couldn't even walk home anymore to be closer to my family and that made the decision for me after being for 10 years in the united states moving back to europe and being closer to my f- immediate family and so and i was just looking around and i saw this position in davos switzerland and in the mountains, in the middle of nowhere. I mean, moving from Manhattan to the Switzerland in the mountains, you know, where the World Economic Forum is taking place. People thought I'm crazy, yeah, but I said like, ah, you know, adventure, take it, see where it goes. I mean, you're independent. My boyfriend at the time wasn't too happy about it, but, you know, we're we're, we're both, you know, you're coming out of student life, being young, and this is, this is, this flexibility you need to show. When you want to go internationally, you have to have a certain flexibility. It's not that I had in mind that I want to be flexible. I was just that way. And we made it happen. So this is how it started. And then being in, in Davos you know, for two years, I realized, you know, it's a little bit too, uh, you know, Manhattan had my, the city life. I was missing it a little bit. And, and then um, already at, but my my luck was that the supervisor in Davos was very much interested in the international lifestyle. That's why I did this project working in Latin America, sitting in Davos, where I was commuting and traveling a lot there um, and spending most of my two years in this region. And I got connected to the UN world. I, I I was able to go with the Swiss delegation to um, in 2005 to Kobe conference where they launched uh, the yoga framework for action. And, and this is how I got connected with the UN world. And then I was able to organize a meeting where I connected to the UN world. And I met the number one um, Salvano Presenio at the time. And we had a very nice conversation. And he said to me, you know, there will be positions coming up. You should apply. And so... I said, yeah, sure, why not, you know, and what happened at the UN conference, what I did is I knew, I heard through a friend that they have a position available and I knew it would be in Bonn and I looked up the chief of the office and he he was he was really he looked like a, a Nordic sailor. He had like he was from New Zealand and he had like a beard like this and had this little picture. So you go to a conference with about, you know, 6,000 people. And I was looking for this chief and I found the session and I went in there and I had my CV printed with me. And I started really looking what he was talking about and I tried to make very smart interventions. And then afterwards I, I took my nerves together and I'm normally kind of shy person when it comes to meeting new people. So then I was like kind of going up to him and try to have a small talk with him. And then he mentioned, you know, we're looking for people. And I knew that already because a friend of mine had told me that they're looking. And I said, like, and he said, please send me your CV. And I just unpacked my CV and gave it to him. And he read it on the way back from Japan to Europe. And then he gave me a phone call. And I was like, I really would like to know you. So it's it's being there at the right moment, but being also smart enough how you play with this little bit of connectivity you have. It's not much connectivity you will get in your life, but you have to use those special moments really smartly. And you have to be upfront and forward, not aggressively, but witty, I would say. Yeah, that, that's true. And, and to kind of, there's a couple of points that we could expand on a bit, which is, you know, I like the way that you were saying that when 
the opportunity came up, you were prepared for it, right? And this was something that we kind of have as, as a theme in the course as well, which is like the international careers these days are, you know, one year, three years, they're, they're very defined limits. It's constant contract renewal. And kind of the theme that's been coming out of all these different interviews and discussions is the fact that you have to look at your own career as almost like your own business, right? So you have to manage your career because nobody's going to help you manage that in the international space, right? It's like you have to be prepared. You have to know what you're doing. You have to be able to talk and present and be able to sell your ideas and sell yourself when these opportunities do come up. So there's, there's an issue of preparedness, you know, of, of self-preparedness to be able to, you know, take advantage of any of these kind of accidental opportunities that we get. And then the other thing of what you said, I think was also very interesting is because through one position, you were starting to get glimpses into another. You were getting connectivity into other types of programs. And that's something that is often not very much explored, which is like, okay, I'm in my job. I'm in doing my thing. But how are you like making connections? Not maybe you specifically, but I mean, how is someone who's in that career field uh, making connections to affiliated programs, you know, whether that's EU, UN, whatever, it's often good to when you when you meet a new person, a new interlocutor, a new somebody that's involved in the programs to talk to them and find out what they're doing and to kind of build out the network that way as well. Um, because just like you said, it, that's how you slowly make these small shifts in your career over time, just by kind of, kind of going from one program to another to a certain extent. Yeah, I totally agree with that because the connection is all. I mean, it's, um, you know, no one was helping me to build up this connectivity. You really have to start it, but you have to be, as you, how should I say that? You have to be flexible. I mean, there's a certain flexibility that you have to expect it. It's not, you know, what you maybe wanted at the beginning, but it leads to something else. And I'm a person who keeps saying, don't quit a job, move from job to job. And even if it slows down you and it's not coming in a way, but at least you make changes. But you also have to stick through tough times because you have to, if you keep changing every few months because you don't like uh, a person in the organization, you don't get along or the project is boring, you still have to stick it through a little bit because you have to show that you you develop um, a time with it. Uh, you know, when I moved to, to Davos, Switzerland, I really realized very early on, this is not the place I want to stay in the long run. I, I liked the people very much, but the environment where it was wasn't really fitting with my personality, but I couldn't leave within you know half a year, a year, because that wouldn't show well on, on the CV. And for me, it was important to stick certain elements through. And then, you know, with time, uh, and in this, it, as you, you said, like you have to manage your own career. You have to not only be prepared to to jump on the right moment when you want to move on, but you also have to look at what is the impact on these changes you are doing. And with time, these are changing very much. And you have to be careful how, how you manage it. Uh, what impact will it have? Uh, and, and now I'm in a stage where I'm married and have children and you know, what impact will it have if I keep changing the location, the impact on my husband's job, on my children's education, on their social development? It's not just anymore about me. It's I have a social environment. And that is where certainly the career that you have in mind, your priorities are changing. And But it changes for every 
everyone deals it very differently. And in I have in an I'm a person who doesn't necessarily play by the international rules. I'm not changing as much as other colleagues are doing. I have colleagues who are having departed families. You know, one partner lives in one country, the other one in the other country. They're commuting with the children and they do this for years. This is something that I discovered for myself is not what I want. But for this reason, my career is moving now very, very slow. Even inside me, I'm itching to do more. I know I can do more. I can do, I want to do more, but this is the, there's a price tag you play and but no one tells you how to do it. You have to figure it out for yourself and you have to find the balance, what is still acceptable or not, because in an international environment where I am, they don't like people being stuck. They don't want they want people to have career inspiration and move fast. They want to have this extreme flexibility where you are with your family moving from A to B to C and take them with them. But uh and and so I you have to interview me in a few years down the road if I'm still on the right track <laughs> or still in my job. But uh, um, it's 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 interesting. Yeah. It's 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 a challenge that you constantly have to re-question yourself. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. And I think since you bring that up, we can explore that career management piece a bit more because, um, I mean, that's tr- that's true. So uh, there's this is why I think that the kind of this course and these discussions and these perspectives interviews are important because we're talking about things that nobody else is talking about which is like okay when you're young and you want to get out there and you don't have family and all that stuff like that and you want to just launch into a career you can go jump through country to country to country every year if you want to hit on your one point about whether to quit or just leave your transition I, I would echo the same point which is like if you're six months into a one-year contract, don't quit because you'll burn that organization and they won't hire you again. Um, just fight it out. Stay with it for one year. Stay until your contract term is over and then go, thank you very much. It was a wonderful time. <laughs> and then and go somewhere else, right? Um, but certainly don't end your contracts in the international community abruptly um, because that's not really, that's kind of frowned upon. But okay. Uh, aside from that, um, but yeah, when, but once you do that, and you know, you're three years in, you're six years in, you're nine years in, your life changes. You know, it's the same situation with me. You know, with you know, married and kids and stuff like that. And you ha- every decision is now a real calculation. You know, what is my commute time? How much time will I be at home? What you know, what is the impact on schools and education? And and we can come back to what we were talking about before about the price of international schools and all these things, which is quite shocking to be honest. But um, it, it's really you have to make more calculated and careful decisions because it's not just you anymore. It's how much time you're going to be at home. But as you said, it's also like your partner's career, right? Because they can't, they don't have the same mobility as as others and so that's really something that i think you know nobody ever really talks about unless you've been in the organizations and it's kind of an internal conversation that that we have amongst ourselves when i say okay well hey stephanie you know i heard about this job it's in you know a colleague of mine is now in in um somalia and so when we were talking about it and chatting about it i was like you're nuts (laughs) you know why go to somalia i would not go to somalia you know no ambition no desire nothing but for him, there's a specific reason to do that. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right about that. And, and uh, why do you feel that it's kind of slowing down your career? Is it, you just think it's 
the international organizations are kind of always viewing as this mobility thing as being progressive? Well, it is expected. I mean, uh, working for the UN, there is this underlying rule. With some organizations, it's it's a real rule. And, and an organization like mine, it's not an enforced rule, but it does exist. And the expectation is that you change, I would say, every four to six years. So six years is really the maximum. But the change, what I mean is you change positions, either within the same duty station or you go somewhere else. So, so basically, starting the fourth year, you have to get the itch and you have to change. And then it's um, depending on the level you are, you do a lateral change. So it's not, and you are required. You can't just move from one level to the next one. You have to first make a lateral change before you can move up the career letter. So you are doing this lateral change, which is fine. That's maybe, and if you're lucky, you can do it with the same duty station, but then you have to move up. And everyone in this organization wants to move up. No one wants to stay at the same level forever. But in in the UN, you have to apply. It's not someone says, oh, Stephanie, you have done a wonderful job. We'd like to promote you and you'll be promoted. This is not going to happen. In contrary, you have to, if you see an opening position, you have to apply. And there's not even a bonus for an internal you have to apply against the rest of the world. So for my current position here, I'm sitting, I had to compete against 400 other people who applied for the same position. And this is how many people apply. So human resources have to go through all these 400 CVs, have to first select those who will be selected for a written test. Then you have to go for an interview. Um, The interviews are probably only eight people, narrowed down to eight. So 20 people will do the written test and eight people have to go to the interview, and then you're selected. I mean, the positive part, if you work for the organization, they hopefully recognize your name, <laughs> and you you hope and you did your due diligence to inform them that you apply for this position, so you at least have a chance to get to the written test. The written test is anonymous. No one knows that it's you applying. You just can hope that you get it, and then you are... Um, and then, you, and then you make it to the interview and then you have to be good at that moment. You still compete because in some positions you have external people who are sitting in there and then they evaluate. So it becomes very tough. So this is why it means you slow down because if you go laterally, fine. If you go higher, as, uh, office uh, space um, change is expected. So, and that usually means another country. And that's suddenly at a certain level, it puts... Um, a limitation, particularly when you take family into consideration, because it's not so easy to find new positions, even if you are part of the system. It's, it's not so easy, and I notice it how colleagues are struggling, and then they are taking changes like I switch from one organization on a temporary basis on a loan, and then when they come back from this loan, they can be placed somewhere else. And I'm, yeah. I happened to a colleague to mine that she was based in Geneva. She went on a loan for another Geneva-based organization. She wanted to go back. The only position that at that time when she had to come back was available was in Africa. So then she had to move for th- uh, two years to Africa, whereas her husband and her son was still in Geneva because the husband couldn't move. And that and there was a young young son and that was really not an easy situation so this is what i mean when you start making decisions on career slowing 
it starts slowing down. So if you want to go in an international organization and you're young enough and you're not yet this bound, my recommendation is do this a lot of international tra uh, living in different places when you're younger. And then when you become older, you're, you make your decisions. But some will stay in. They like this craziness. But others mm. will say it's not working. No, and, and thank you for saying that because that's something that it that has always been kind of my opinion as well, which is like, okay, if when we talk about upward mobility and, and you know, the higher you go, the more competitive it is. Uh, and especially what well, I think a, a fundamental kind of mis mistake, maybe not mistake or misconception, whatever you want to call it, is that people apply directly to Geneva. They apply directly to New York. They apply directly to Brussels. They apply... You know, and they go right for the headquarters jobs. And what we, you know, in my opinion, and what we teach in the course is like, okay, don't, if you're starting your career now, don't do that because you're going right for the most competitive positions. Like go for the field positions where you have a greater opportunity. There's more positions because there's more field locations than there is just New York, right? But go, there's more field positions and you can apply there and you can start. And then exactly to your point of mobility, you can do three years, four years, six years, whatever it is, and just move, move, move. And as you progress up and get into, you know, senior stages in your career and you're a senior professional, then you have more stability and you should be, therefore, at a, a headquarters position. And then you don't have to fight so much with those kind of things. But it, and to contrast what you're saying in NATO, it's generally on the contract, it's written three plus three. Mm -hmm. uh, three years plus three, three years more, three-year option if you're good, uh, but then you have to change at six years, and that means a, a fundamental change. And again, it's open like every, like I think the UN is as well. So it's an open, open uh, application process. Uh, and speaking from experience with OSCE, yeah, tests are anonymized. Uh, you can tell who's in the organization who's not <laughs> because the technical details and everything that they go along with that. But, but yeah, tests are anonymized and it goes to the board in that way. But that, that's actually, that's really something that we've, the career mobility part I think is a big misunderstanding as well, you know, as far as these organizations. Yeah. And, and as you said, no one, no one is helping you. You have to figure it out yourself and, and uh, you know, you can do be as brilliant as you are in an organization it'll not make it any easier. And no one comes to you and said, here you are, you do wonderful. That's happened in the private sector. You know, private sector can help you promoting yeah. and shifting. You, you're much faster on that one, but not in an international organization. At least this is not what I've, no, it hasn't happened. You, it ha I have not seen it once, so. Yeah, neither have I. Neither have I. No. So let's talk a bit about, because we were having an interesting discussion. So let's talk about uh, a little bit about this aspect of, you know, the choices we have to make kind of when you're your senior stages of your, your senior management, senior professional, whatever. And I understand that people taking the course are likely just starting out, but it's really it, the, the whole idea of this interview process is to like get to understand what the life is like, you know, to, to get a glimpse of the decisions we have to make because it's not anywhere. You know, we were talking before about having to move and then having to find schools and having to do all these things and, and manage these. What you make one decision about a job and there's a hundred factors that we have to consider. And so, what are you what are you thinking about when you have a new position that comes open? What are some of the thoughts that go through your head? I mean, the new positions that come in is uh, now having children is the schools. Which schools can I send them to? My children right now growing up bilingual. 
um, open to languages, and yet I need the school that fits the language. Some of the international schools here uh, in, in Belgium um, costs an annual basis uh, 24 to 30,000 euros a year per child. In the UN, you get subsidies, but uh, what I learned in for certain duty stations, only up to a certain amount. Mm-hmm. So they would not even pay half of it for this. And so it doesn't matter if you are not a senior person, um, you know, like mid-level officer or, or higher level, the price is the same. And your child either yeah. has to learn the local language to get local schools uh, or not. Uh, and so in an international career, your salary looks looks very attractive. It's very high compared to national salary. So you can afford mm. quite a few nice things. Uh, when, you're, when you're independent, single, or maybe with a partner, perfect. As soon as the children come into play, it changes because you want the perfect support for them. And that's why you start looking first. Where do you live? I live outside uh, Brussels because uh, here we can afford space, uh, which through COVID, I was very happy <laughs> for this this space to have. But this is a price where you, where you start looking into it. And it's for me, it's all around the children. The children are telling you uh, in your career where you're going. And so um, luckily everywhere are international schools, but if it's as expensive as it is here in, in Brussels, you have to think what you're going to do. And uh, I have one colleague uh, who, out of principle, he has four children, sends them to the local schools and they had to learn all the local languages, Spanish, French, he's Dutch. Uh, so he, at home they speak Dutch, but they had to speak all the, the, the various languages that they, they moved to. And at one point he decided that's enough. And it's enough also for the children because they complained. They said, too many languages. We can't handle it. So we want to stay with one. But he says, like, I can't send you to the international schools. With the salary I receive, as good as it is, it's not good enough to pay for you so much to, to be able to afford. Not that he didn't want to, but to afford to pay this. And um, I do know that there are some international organizations. Um, I don't know if international, but there are some who pay uh, for the schools more, but with the UN, it's only up to a certain percentage or a certain amount. Yeah, I think most are largely the same to a certain extent. Like they pay up to a certain amount, and it depends on what path. If you want private education or public or whatever, but that that raises a, a couple of, of of points, which I think are really great that people don't really understand. Is that like okay, you take an international career, and if you want to make it okay, you take an international position, maybe you do it for three years and you go back to the United States or you go back to Germany or you go back wherever it is. But if you make it a career and you actually have a family, you're to a certain extent imposing languages upon your children, right? So you're like, okay, you have to go to school because you need to go to school, but you now have to learn French or you have to learn Dutch or you have to learn German or you have to learn these languages. So your kids are forced is not a nice word, but it's, you know, they're placed in a position because of your career that there have to be bilingual, trilingual, learning in new environments and everything else like that. Now compare and contrast to that to like state department in the United States, where generally there's always like the American school, right? Wherever these assignments are. Um, And so it's every three years, they kind of just migrate through a U.S. education system for the most part, not always, not a hundred percent, but that doesn't change. But if you're working in the, in 
you know, with other international organizations, then it's, it's a bit different. And so that, that's one thing that we never talk about is like, okay, the, the kids having to transition and adjust to those environments as well. Yeah, but I think, I mean, honestly, I think it's, it's for the children, I think it's the best. I mean, they're so open to internationalism. They're open to, they're not afraid of speaking at, at a young age. So I actually see it as something very positive. And, and there are, most of the duty stations have international schools. It's just the price tag that, that is a little bit worrisome. But, but it depends really where, where you go. And some are not so expensive than others. And nearly in every uh, duty station you have the, the international school that, that can speak your language. It's really, you, you, even you're from Sweden, you find a Swedish school, you find, you find quite good. So I, I actually think it's a beauty in being embracing multiple languages. And I, I see it in, in my children. That I wouldn't make a stopping point, to be honest. But it's something to, that will take you into consideration, I think. But I, I, I wouldn't see it as something to worry. And if I would start an international career, I wouldn't, see that as a worrisome point it comes later on that makes in your career path and development with something you take into considerations and some say i don't it's not a problem i'll move it the children move it no problem they can handle it some say it's, it has no impact on the children and some families say no this is not for me i see with my children it doesn't doesn't work that well because it has an impact. There's constant changes that can't take it. And, you know, I'll, I'll have friends that have coming out of World Bank families or, you know, uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs families uh, that are families that keep moving. And you see when they're telling you the impact it has with their life because they lived all around the world and what they're looking into it. In, in an aspect. So it's it's not stopping Uyo, but it's something that will change later on and you have and it will come. It will you will not have you will have to face that issue at one point. But I wouldn't make it as a point when you start a career to, to worry about it. I, I think you have to be open and minded and just go with the flow. Things will come, things will solve. You will can handle it when the moment comes. So certainly not to worry. But it, it certainly will put a, put a heavy thinking thought on you. That's certainly yeah does. yeah I, yeah no absolutely. It's not meant again. This is like if you're just starting your career. It's not meant to stop you from doing that. It's it's simply an issue of you know these decisions will have will have a greater impact on your decisions or your these these situations will have a greater impact on your decisions as you progress in your career. So this is very much more like a uh, more of a senior kind of maybe mid career to senior level decisions that people have to make when you're getting in, you know, 10, 15, 20 years into your career. But the other thing I think also that just to highlight very quickly is when we talk about the salary scales of, of the international organizations, this, this is a detail that we haven't really got into in a great deal, but it's interesting because I think people don't understand, they see the number on paper, but then don't understand the economics behind that. Right. So like the school is an enormous cost. The cost of living in the country you're going to could be an enormous cost. You know, it's obviously very different uh, standards of living, even just throughout Europe, you know. And so it's, it's not as cut and dry. It's not as black and white and crystal clear that this is your salary. Like there's large chunks that come out of that for the living expenses and everything else, you know, unless of course it's paid for you by the international organization because you're in the field, because you're in Somalia, because you're in, 
you know, Africa and or Middle East or other places like that. But if you're in Europe proper, like there's just a lot of additional expenses that are coming out of that. And so the the total number is a bit misleading. Yeah. Yes, it, it's very sexy uh, salaries, um, and uh, but the thing is, uh, in um, not many in the UN don't have a continuing or permanent contract. So in my entire career, 15 years, I've been renewed every single year. And in this contract, there's a caveat. It says based on the availability of funding because our organization is extra budgetary. So depending on the money that comes in, it is your, you know, they can release you from your position within a month notification because of no budget availability or your post is maybe not as secure. It's only a temporary position and then it will fall out because they can't extend you much longer. I have colleagues who have been two years temporary staff and then they had to let go uh, with an attractive salary. But then you need to start balancing this time period where you don't have it. And it happens. It does happen that if if you're not being able to move as quickly or you have not a proper transition because positions are not coming up, that this happens. You have this break. And so when you have this high salary, you have to always put things aside and plan for the what if when situation. So you have to be very careful with it. And at the end of the day, the money is uh, is there, but the expenses are one time higher. You know, as you mentioned, you go somewhere, the schools there, the the cost of living. You have to purchase something. You need a country where you certainly need a driver because you're not allowed to drive alone uh, as a woman. You you can't be alone somewhere. You need additional protective measures. The houses have to be in a certain compound area enclosed. Uh, this is an additional cost to it. So you you are not living and so the expenses are higher but you always have to calculate it and then what's also happening is you have to think um, I'm thinking always retirement not because I want to retire but you have to say where does my money go and who pays my retirement money in the UN you have to have a certain level of years before you actually can benefit from the retirement and that also then becomes the, the uh, the danger if you're too long in the system or like in between stepping out at one point becomes difficult <laughs> because you pay into the system which if you leave you lose the benefit for retirement and that's then somewhere stay uh -huh. on and that's another thinking that some i mean you don't have to think when you're young of course but some older colleagues are uh, starting looking in this way it's like okay when is the time i could do something else because they said i don't want to be in this situation anymore i don't want to be constantly changing i'm happy now and i had colleagues who went to early retirement and started working for a non-profit organization because they wanted to feel more doing this type of work at the towards the end of the career because they right. felt they make a different type of impact yeah that's a that's a whole new you could we could write a book about that whole <laughs> but uh, no, that, that's definitely something that you learn once you're inside the system because then you're locked into the system because of the, the pension funding that goes with that. And that's, that's incredible. And, and the fact that, you, that, that you're locked into the system based on one year continually, you know, signing a new contract every year on a rotating one year basis with some kind of like longevity clause in there, which is ironic. Could, could you go, because you mentioned something I think is, is quite interesting, which 
which we haven't had the opportunity to, to discuss yet in these interviews, but uh, in, the inter- in the interview series. But could you elaborate on some of the dynamics of being a woman working in the international missions? You know, because you mentioned interesting things like, like I would never think about like, okay, well, because you're a woman, you can't, you need a driver because maybe you're in different countries where again, that's against the law or whatever the case is. So what are some of the dynamics that in, that are, are go along with working international organizations, but as a woman? Mm, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, uh, I, well, I can't speak to the subject. So. Yeah, yeah, no. I <laughs> I'm going to put all the pressure on you. To <laughs> I have to admit, in, in, in my organization, it was, it's, you know, in the end, you, you have the gender uh, sure. conversations and we really look into gender parity in in in, in un office uh, for dr uh, we are really half gender parity on every single level right now and and we're very proud of it uh, and and our number one is you know our gender champion um and we, we keep that that way mm-hmm. uh and we're looking now uh, next level of what we're trying to reach is um uh, diversity you know we're looking when you hire people where are they coming from is it majority european uh, north americans or asians or where are the africans are, are having having a or, um, diversity um, it wasn't that way before I mean me coming out of the geology way uh, pathway I was anyway one of the few women in a male dominated environment and um, and I was just fighting my way through it I mean I had a professor who tells me uh, women should be, be uh, in the kitchen behind the desk you know and and I have a colleague who is very flexible in the UN system and he's moving up the career like this but his wife is uh, not working. Uh, so, so for me, and what I noticed with a lot of my my colleagues who are, um, also some of them have senior who are have senior positions, are both have either they are single and mm. are not necessarily in a relationship, or they are in a relationship where they have an equal partnership. And then they can move together. But then also you could see some are more willing to take the risk and have the separate career live duty stations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they commute. Um, a former um, colleague of mine uh, uh, is now in Senegal. The husband is in Geneva. And, and they're commuting. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's a crazy commute. If you think of, you call this commute, yeah. I, I mean, I call this vacation travel or something. I wouldn't call this commute, but they 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 speak about commuting. So you yeah. have to make these type of decisions, and they are not not an easy decisions. And you have children as well. And and I'm sorry if I always speak about the children, but at one point this is you know some of want to be and I um, and have and but I can see a lot of women who are in the very senior positions that are also single and they're fighting mm-hmm. the way through. Mm-hmm. So is it better? Is it good? I don't, I can't judge that, but it's coming. And because of in the UN, you want to have the gender parity. That's one of our must rules and we're moving forward. It became easier and easier to that part, but we do look into it. If you have hiring people and we need look at this, it's too male dominated. We start looking and hiring uh, the women Hard, but I have to admit, in right. in, in what immediate environment I am, I don't have an, I don't have an issue. But when you work in with governments who are 
Yeah, you sometimes get an interesting response if you're a woman. <laughs> and I realized that some started respecting me because I had a PhD. That was also yeah. interesting, uh, which I, you know, in the UN, we don't carry titles. Mm-hmm. No one cares what type of degree you have. You are you are a program officer full stop. It doesn't matter if you had a PhD or master's or bachelor's. We are all seen in a way of equal equal level. But then when sure. you talk with governments, they stop making a difference on this one. And that mm-hmm. I thought was very interesting as on top yeah. of being a woman. So very interesting. Yeah, there's just a, a lot of different dynamics. You know, we don't have time to cover all of them, but it's certainly very interesting, especially that people need to think about if when they're going into field environments and, and what the work environment will be like, especially with regards to the host nation and where you're living, because that will determine almost everything about your freedom of movement to move around for, for men or, or women. I mean, exactly. when I spent a couple of years in Afghanistan, it wasn't like that was a vacation, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, so we're, we're kind of coming to a close. It's we, we've gone a little bit long, but it's been really, it's been insightful. And I think, you know, the the issue with i think children is is a is a is a great example when you do have kids cuz i have kids as well we're doing that kind of hub and spoke thing where like i go out to work and then i come back and i go out and then my kids and the family are stationary um but i'm not far away right so it's kind of like just like in the states some people commute on the weekends or you know it takes me it's probably faster for me to fly home than there's somebody to try and commute and drive into washington dc right so <laughs> it's like uh it's virtually about the same time but that's where it's just for us it was like it's a better decision on stability cuz you know moving the kids around all the time was just like just too difficult right so we wanted stability and then i was the one that would shoulder the burden of just traveling all the time uh, and so there, there's many ways that people make those decisions, but it is something that comes into play later on in your career. And, and especially with all the moving around and the way that the international organizations are structured to make people move. Right. I think they're just now intentionally structured that way. Yeah. To have turnover, to force people to move, to force people to move up or whatever the case is. So that's something that we just have to deal with. But um, kind of closing this out, what are some kind of tips that you would have for Somebody that's maybe just starting the university and wants to to plan ahead. We kind of discussed that a bit about being prepared, but if you have any other tips. Um, and then somebody maybe that's just like today and just wants to make a transition and jump over to international work. What kind of tips would you give people in those two kind of two different categories? I think go with the heart what you like to do because ultimately that helps you to do and exceed what you do well and uh, is if you start don't think about what happens uh, in in the long run and happens tomorrow I mean a little bit but I think just go with the flow and be open-minded be be witty ask you know meet people talk to them I think that's even if you're starting or if you're in the career, this is really helps opening your mind and always step back and slow down and say, is that really what I want for me? Is that the right thing? And it, it doesn't matter. And I do this frequently for me. Step, I step back, I, I go for a walk around the block or in the garden or mountains and I think about, is that, am I still on the right thing? Is it healthy for me? And you do this when you're young and then think, when you're open, you will see opportunities will open up. Don't shy away. Don't think too much about the what if whens. I do this, but 
I, I let go. Sometimes you have to let go. And and I think that's works really the best. I mean, in, in terms of conclusion. And then it's the subject. You know, that's the driver. Everything else falls into place. Yes, I put my children and my family first, but ultimately the job you spend most of the time in your in your life, that's a lot of time. And then you have to make it fun. Don't make it about money. Don't make it about make it that you feel like you're making an impact and a change. And that's what it is. And then then it falls into place. I, that's my philosophy. Well, that's a good philosophy. Yeah, and I think yeah, because there there is no path in international careers. There's not a career path. It's not like no. you're a lawyer to a judge to, I don't know, Supreme Court, whatever whatever that might be. There There is no career path. And so people are taking positions that they feel like they can do, that they want to do, that they find interesting. So it does come back to exactly what you're saying. What is it that you actually want to do? So you've got to that point of self-reflection. Uh, and then to do that consistently with every step that you're taking, just to make sure you're going in the direction you want to go. Because you don't want to end up, as we discussed previously, you don't want to end up in a, a position you, that you hate in a country you don't want to be in and then, you know, want to leave and, and then cut your contract and then you kind of get a bad name in the <laughs> in the international space. And so you want to be able to make decisions that are fitting for you. And so I think that's a great way to to end the interview. And again, thank you very much for your time and sharing your insights and perspectives. And, and yeah, it was, it was great talking to you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And I hope uh, it was really helpful. Thank you. <laughs>